Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to be here and worship that Savior together. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. If I haven't met you yet, we're so glad you're here uh, worshiping with us this, this morning. Um, we just want to let you know, uh, many of you were here last week uh, when our, we, we let you know that our dear friend uh, and brother in the Lord, Chuck Davis, uh, went to be home with Jesus last Tuesday, um, and if you haven't heard that, I remember Chuck was one of the, our brother come in with the, he had cerebral palsy, a, cere- a, a severe form of cerebral palsy, um, and you'd often see him in here with his wheelchair and was the loudest, most joyful singer uh, in our crew, and uh, look forward to seeing Chuck again someday. But we wanted to let you know, next Wednesday on the 27th uh, at 2 o'clock, uh, we're going to be having the memorial service right here at the church. More details to come, but next Wednesday, the 27th at 2 o'clock here at, at Peninsula Grace. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying through the book of Daniel this past uh, this summer, and we're in chapter 3 this morning. We'll have the verses up on the screen in the Christian Standard Bible, uh, but uh, feel free to, to join along on your phone or, or those uh, things. I think they, used to, they still have those books that you can read with the Bible print in them. You could use one of those too. Uh, and, and in the back of the foyer on the little white table, our bulletins have fill-in-the-blanks uh, for the sermon notes if you want to join us in that. So there's this famous picture that's floated around on the Internet uh, for a while now. It's from a Nazi uh, rally back in 1936. Now, I'm going to play a little Where's Waldo, World War II style. I want you to see, can you spot, there's one man in the crowd that is not doing the Heil Hitler. Can you spot him? One guy up in the crowd that's not impressed. He's not, can anybody see him? Raise your hand if you spotted the guy. We've got a couple eagle eyes out there. I see, no, sweetie, he's the one of the, no, he's the, okay. There you go. All right, so we're ready to reveal the big reveal. There, is, there he is right there, August, arms folded, not, so what's going on here? Why isn't he saluting? Well, it turns out, 55 years later, his, one of his children identified him in this picture, and his name is August Landmesser. It's a strong German name. And, and, it, and what the story is that he married a Jewish gal. Isn't it always because of a girl, right? So, baby, I, I'm not going to hire Hitler for, for it. I only hire you, baby, right? That's only not going to do it. And so he, both of them uh, ended up in prison and, and actually died during World War II. And it has become this kind of iconic representation of someone willing to stand up, to not bow, to not, to, to not salute to Hitler, to, to, to stand up against the peer pressure of the masses, even when it means great personal risk uh, for them. And today in Daniel 3, we're going to hear a similar story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or the more theologically uh, termed Shad, uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny, uh, for those VeggieTale fans in the crowd this morning, uh, 90s kids, rise up. Uh, just like August refused to bow down to Heil Hitler, we see these three buddies refuse to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And as we think about this story, it's easy to think, well, I'd never bow down to some statue, some false god, right? I would stand up, stand up for Jesus. Like, I would take that stand. And, and probably, probably, none of us today are, in our lives are going to face a literal moment where we're forced to bow to some statue or will be physically killed. But what I see in this text this morning is there is a subtle, enticing lie at the root of this story that I do think we each face 
basically every single day, and I want us to explore that together. So Daniel chapter 3, we're going to first look at this deadly lie, the deadly lie. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So let's chat about this for a second. Uh, We see here Nebuchadnezzar comes out hot in chapter 3. He's showing us some some chutzpah. And, And the reason is, if you were with us last week, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream interpreted to him by Daniel. And in that dream, uh, Daniel said, there's this statue, and you and, and Babylon represent the head of this statue, a head of gold. But then Daniel goes on to say, after you, there will become another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then another kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, you and your empire, your kingdom, are temporary. There will be other kings that rise and fall after you are long gone. But what do we see? The first thing he's doing here in chapter 3, he is erecting a statue of himself or of representing Babylon made of what? Pure gold. What is he saying? There will be no after me, thank you very much. That me and Babylon will reign forever and ever. Glory. Hallelujah. Nebuchadnezzar, right? That, that, that it will always be me. And I, I picture this muhahaha at the end of verse 1. And, and so we see, we, we continue the, the story here, verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. They stood before the statue that he had set up. Got some redundancy going on in this story. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and every language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, this author liked them some lists, did they not? Uh, You are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. So the question is, what is going on? He erects this statue, and, and it's a statue of gold, but what does it represent? And the text, is just, it doesn't really tell us clearly. Does it represent, is this like an ancient selfie of Nebuchadnezzar he wants everybody to see? Does this represent the Babylonian gods? Does this just kind of represent the, the empire of Babylon? We're not told. But what I see here at the heart of what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to accomplish are two lies that he is bought into. The first lie is, it's all about me. It's all about me. Whatever this represents, Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone to bow to his statue. It's a, less, a lasting uh, testimony to his own uh, legacy and dominion. The second lie I see here is that it's, I do what I want. That Nebuchadnezzar thinks that Babylon as an empire can oppose, impose its will on every other nation. That all nations are forced to bow, and that's what they're doing. This giant uh, game of risk where they're trying to gobble up all the other nations and become the dominion over the whole world. In our Babylon today, I think we face a similar dilemma to these three who are being forced to bow to this statue. But I think our Babylon today approaches us very different. We've been saying that we we live in a a more and more post-Christian culture. That more and more the, the, the world we're, the water we're swimming in as Jesus following fish are people that say we've moved beyond God, beyond following Jesus. But so what's the kind of the pressure to bow to another God in our day? 
Well, I want to talk for a moment about the difference between hard power and soft power. Maybe you've heard these terms being used a little bit more recently. Hard power is when we aggressively take something. So think more recently with Russia invading the Ukraine, right? There's this hard power using tanks and guns and bombs saying, we're going to take your land uh, and it's going to be our land, right? But soft power works differently. Soft power doesn't physically force. Soft power seduces. It, it attracts. The way soft power works is makes its way appealing and attractive. It's not done with an iron fist. It's done with a soft wink and a beckon. So modern day Babylon doesn't usually use hard power. Most of us, again, are not going to face this bow to the statue or die. The kind of August place of Heil Hitler or you're in trouble. You're going to jail. More often, it's soft power. The Babylon says, hey girl, come on this way. Check out my way, my thing, and these lies come into our heads as well. The first lie here, it's all about me. The culture around us today wants to sell us on this idea that happiness is going to be found by making ourselves the center of the universe. And with that, there are a couple of gods that we are soft power-wise tempted, coerced into, trying to bow to. The first one is the god of approval. The god of approval. So if I believe that the world centers around me, I want to be seen in the best light possible. So I want people to like the things I post on social media. I want more and more followers, right, uh, so to speak. As a, as a pastor, this can get dangerous. What can happen is if I, care, if I bow to the God of approval, then I can become more concerned about your approval of me and, and I will, it, will, it will tempt me to move away from what the Word of God says to what I think you want to hear. And I can start tailoring my sermons away from truth to try to make Justin be liked and followed on my Instagram feed. You can find me at Justin. I don't actually know, you know how Instagram works. Um, but for, maybe for teenagers here, or, or and actually adults as well, oftentimes we, I mean, we want to be in. We want to be accepted. And so a lot of times we say, well, I want this friend group to like me or this one girl, or this one boy in particular. And so it couldn't hurt to try that thing that everybody else is trying, right? Even if I know my parents or I know my own conscience would say not to. And we start to adapt language and attitude of the people around us. This God says, bow to me or you will face the fiery furnace. But this, this furnace is one of mockery and ridicule and rejection, that the fear is I am going to be on the outside looking in if I don't give myself to this God. And so we, one of the ways we bow to this God is when we conform, when we compromise to the people around us in, in hopes that they will approve of us. The other God that we can often find ourselves bowing to in this lie is the God of comfort. This is the God of immediate uh, gratification, instant gratification. Um, that, that we, again, if it's all about me, then it's about my desires here and now. This God tells you, you just do what feels good. To kind of self-medicate in the, the immediate with comfort. So you've had a hard day, then you deserve to pop that bottle open and take it all the way down to the bottom that you just, man, you just go ahead and, and let off some steam, open the laptop, click on that link, open the phone, swipe in the direction that you really know you shouldn't be. That, that maybe it's saying, you know what, a lot of us, my therapist today is going to be Amazon or Etsy, right? He's going to buy something and that will make me feel good. Maybe, you know what, church is hard and it's messy. Let's just go to Kaladi. Like, let's just do brunch, right? It can start in little, small, subtle ways. But what this God is saying is bow to me or you will face the fiery furnace of boredom of frustration, of emptiness and loneliness. And so what this God tells us, we bow to this God when we indulge without any discretion. When, when we simply just self-medicate, it becomes a mindset of treat yourself, 
right? Do what feels good. The other lie that we can succumb to, like Nebuchadnezzar did, was I do what I want. I do what I want. And if I see myself as God, then it becomes my will be done. My way, this is the idea of autonomy. Autonomy means self-rule. So if I think I'm the center of the universe, then who's actually running my universe? And so two gods here, the god of control. Um, Our culture's mantra today is uh, listen to yourself. You define you. Take control of your own life's steering wheel. Now, we see this in some obvious ways that maybe in our subculture we don't succumb to as much. Uh, We see some of the the lies behind you define yourself, your gender, your orientation, whatever it might be, or even some of the arguments we've been seeing with the Roe v. Wade and my body, my rights, or whatever. But then even deeper than some of those issues, what a central struggle. I mean, if I be honest with you, as we went through COVID, what I saw on all sides was, was this idea of nobody tells me what to do with my life. And we start to underline this attitude. This, this God says, bow to me or face the furnace of slavery. It's a fear of letting anybody else run my life. This God says, protect my God-given rights no matter the cost. But subtly, we start to take that God-given out, and it's just my rights. And then another one, if I haven't stepped on enough toes already, uh, the God of nation, right? So the God of nation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar believed that his empire, the nation-state of Babylon, would reign forever and should reign forever. And and what we do, and I want to be careful here, uh, but I want to be clear, like, loving our nation is good. Like, being grateful that we're in a nation like we are, that's, that's okay. But what happens is when we make it an idol... When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. Nation love is good. Nationalism is dangerous. And what we're doing is we're putting our ultimate hope, not in Jesus' king and his kingdom, but in a nation state, the United States of America. Or maybe we replace Jesus' way, following him as ultimate, with the Republican agenda or the Democrat agenda. The best test of an idol is when it's threatened to be taken away. So let me ask you, how do you or did you react when your political party wasn't voted in? Like It's one thing to be sad and to say, I genuinely think that is the better direction for us as a nation. But what happens is when we despair, when we despair and say all hope is gone because the right person is not in the Oval Office, who is actually our God in that? Listen, we're making good things, ultimate things here. When I say I must, at all, God is ultimate. I must have your approval. I must have control. I must have that comfort, self-medicating device. I must, our nation must be the world's superpower. We start to put our finger on some idols. And what is the lie that makes these false gods so deadly? We said it's a deadly lie. Let's continue in the story. Verse 8, some Chaldeans, that was the word for his magicians there in Babylon, they took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. So these guys have a a short memory. Remember back in chapter 1 when Daniel and his buddies showed them up? That they've not forgotten. Verse 9, they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Those ancient suck-ups, right? You, as king, have this issued a decree. I said, remember when you said that if people don't bow, it's... Right? Well, check out these guys over here. Verse 12, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. We don't want to name any names. (coughs) Right? Meshach and Abednego, these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So they, and because Nebuchadnezzar believes the lies, that it's about him, that he does what he wants, 
Look at what it causes him to do, how it causes him to react. Verse 13. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring the three in. They were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of all these instruments, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire and a question that will haunt him, who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't agree with Nebuchadnezzar, that it's all about him and his glory and his way, it causes him to sentence them to death. Now, that might seem like an overreaction, right? little extreme, but it shows us the deadly nature of believing lies. See, bowing to a false god brings us to a place where we must eliminate any perceived threat to our throne. And, and, and again, we're talking hard power versus soft power here. Like, I doubt most of you are walking around going, bow to me or it's a knuckle sandwich, right? If you do that, that's weird, and we've got counseling set up for you. We'd love to connect you into that. But um, most of us, it, it's this soft power, right? Our, our culture today, it, it tolerates everything but what? Intolerance. So it's the idea that you do you, I'll do me, but don't you tell me what to do. And, and we, listen, we make no mistake, we are being evangelized that lie every day, everywhere that we turn. That's all of our social media, it's all of our peers, and let's be real, our own habits and thought processes cater to this as well. Do not let anyone else tell me what to do or believe. The mantra today is be you, do you, and it's all for you. This is our perceived idea of freedom. And so when someone doesn't cowtail to our God, we don't throw them into a literal furnace, but what do we say? You're dead to me. You're canceled, right? And we push people away. If you don't agree with me, if you don't see the world the way I do, you're out of here. And this is what, I mean, death literally means self, uh, uh, separation. And so what we continue to do is isolate ourselves further and further until we find ourselves on an island. Because you know the only person who will completely agree with me in every way, shape, and form me, right? Eventually, this takes myself to be all alone. And when we bow to these, these gods, comfort, approval, control, man, we're going to isolate ourselves. And not even maybe physically, but we do it relationally. This is what we do when we bow to comfort and we retreat to online fantasy because it's easier and more self-gratifying than even real sex, right? So what, what we actually do is pleasure on my terms, that pornography can be easier and more self-indulging than a real relationship. We, we do this with friends. And I'm just going to retreat to Facebook, the real world, too messy, too hard, right? But I can have friends on my terms. And if you don't like me, I mute your face, Right? And I just become, I just, I have this echo chamber around me of just all my friends seem to happen to agree with me. Life is great, right? It's this idea of bow to me, I'm in control, moo, ha, ha, ha. We're Nebuchadnezzar. But this illusion, this is an, and it is an illusion of control and autonomy. Does it actually bring us happiness? Does it actually bring us freedom? It does not, right? I think about in my own life, I bowed to the God of comfort for over 20 years in my own addiction to pornography because I thought it would just make me feel good. I would like it. But what did it actually do? It drove me into hiding, into isolation and shame. And even when I was around people, I couldn't be the real me. I couldn't actually connect with them and be honest with my full self. I was in hiding. And, and we see this is what, and, and I'll tell you what, my, my wife had been wisely counseled, man, if, if there's a dude who is in the throes of pornography addiction, she was advised, don't start down that road with him. 
Like she's not in the place to be able to actually love you first. And, and I man, what a, what a joy and what a, what a privilege that God freed me from that God of comfort that I'm in now a harder but infinitely better real relationship with a real human. That's really hard, right? Especially for Jill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but divine true intimacy. Ironically, this quest for freedom leads us to the slavery of our own desires. We find ourselves deserted on a lonely, bitter island. And as we'll see next, man, it is only when we let the true God be our God that we will actually find freedom in his joyful kingdom community. The deadly lie is bow to me. The rescuing truth is bow to him. So for thousands of years, we believed that the earth was the center of the universe. I hope I didn't pop any bubbles if you didn't know that, that wasn't the case. Uh, so we thought that the, other, that the sun and the other planets revolved around us. Um, and, but things got really messy with this view. Like for a while, they thought that Mars was, work, was moving backward, right? It was the Mars walk, not the moon walk, right? Because that was, that, that was bad. So we didn't really understand. And we, we were basing our calendar on the equinoxes. And so that made all of our dates get all messed up and that the uh, sailor, sailors were actually basing their, they charted their courses on the eclipses that they would see and that got them literally lost at sea. Like sailors would die because they misunderstood how the universe worked and how our, what our solar system revolved around. See, once we realize that we're not the center of the universe, when we're not the center of our own solar system, we replaced a deadly lie for the rescuing truth. How much better is it to live in the light of reality? Now, all of a sudden, we understood how orbits worked and why gravity could be stable, why Mars moved the way it does. We're finally able to have Easter on the right day every year, right? And our, our sailors were able to get home. Like, it rescued us, like, in a very literal, physical way. So our three in this story are reminding us of how much better it is, how much more freeing it is to live in light of reality that we are actually not the center of the universe. Look at this next verse. If you don't, Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't worship my statue, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue from you from my power? They say, well, we're glad you asked, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. I love this. Oh, man, I'm sure he's getting all sorts of riled up on that, right? You're not our God. We don't answer to you. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of, the blaze, of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Then I love this line. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. To borrow a, a phrase from the kids, that's a baller response. Uh, <laughs> The key, I'm so cool. So the, uh, <laughs> notice the key word there, that we, the God we serve, we serve somebody. These three know and live in the reality that the universe does not revolve around them. Now, if God was their servant, they could tell Nebuchadnezzar what was going to happen. If, if we order God around, then we'll tell him what he's going to do. But notice that's not what happens. They actually say, we don't know what God's going to do because he's God, not us. He knows the future, not us. But I love, it says, whether, I, we know that he can rescue us because he's God, but even if he doesn't, we can trust him and continue to serve him as our faithful king. 
in verse 19, that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. And I love this. The expression on his face changed. I doubt it was a pleasant one, right? <laughs> his mom's like, it'll stay that way. Uh, it, it changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie them up and to throw them into the furnace of, blazing, of the blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Now there's an irony at, in what happens next. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. So ironically... It's the, those who had bowed to the statue that end up dying right here, his men. But who ends up living? The ones, as we'll see, that, that do not bow to the statue. And this is the deal. Our idols are lying to us. Right? When, they, when they tell us, come here, baby, I'll make you happy. I'll, I'll meet all of your needs. I'll make you feel alive. What promises life is actually death. And this is what Jesus taught like for those who are going to follow him. He said in, in Matthew 16, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. He said, if you try to preserve, if you make the, you the center of the universe, and you try to be in control of your own life, if you make it all about you and your comfort and the approval from other people, the irony is you actually lose your life in the process of trying to save it. He says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? He says, if, if you, you could have it all, right? This is Solomon. You can have everything in the world, but all of those false gods will lead you to a dead end. And in the meantime, you've sold your soul and you're, you're dead. So then how does Jesus teach? Where do we find joy? Where do we find actual life? He tells his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. He says it's actually in the surrender of your life that you gain it. It's actually letting go of control that you find sanity and order in your life. He says, if you, but if you give up your life for my sake, that's how you're going to save it. If you give yourself to me, like the irony again here is that we will only truly know freedom and make no, that's what God wants from us. Not a bunch of mindless slaves. He wants children. He wants those who will be loved by him. He says, the way you actually find freedom is by serving by making yourself a willing slave to Jesus. How much better is it to live in the reality? We found out in our solar system, life revolves around the sun. And likewise, and this is a little cheesy, but we know that our lives revolve around the sun, right? S-O-N. But let's not forget, we left our three boys in a furnace, so that was rude. Let's go back and, and pick up, because we said it's a rescuing truth. They're in a furnace. How is this a rescuing truth? Let's read. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar jumped in alarm. I love, he jumped in alarm. I don't know what that looked like, but he said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound in the fire? I, I, I'm not a great counter, but like, they say, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He said, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So who is this fourth person walking around the fire with them? We're not told. Some have said this could have been Jesus, that, that anytime we see a kind of a physical, a person in the body of representing God, that it, it could very well be Jesus. Might be, doesn't say. It could just be an angel that they sent to be with them, right? Could be John Travolta. We don't know, right? It's just, <laughs> just not told, right? That's the creepiest picture in the whole world. But here's the point. Here, here's the point. God sends someone into the flames with them. 
the beautiful truth here is it's the power of withness. How often in our lives, it, what we need is not someone to give us the exact right advice or to solve all of, our, all of our problems. We just need someone with us in the midst of our problems to walk the road with us. And that's what we're called to be to others. Like, it's exhausting trying to be God and trying to fix everybody, save everybody. I, I can't save myself, right? Let's start there. And I love, I heard this line recently, it's really stuck with me. Don't just do something, stand there, right? You see the way it's inverted? Oftentimes we rush to a solution and we've got to fix it, and with good intention. Right? We want to help our, our, our family member or our friend, but what, what we've got to remember is it's not just being able to fix. A lot of times it's just simply weeping with those who weep. It's just being there in the midst and saying, you're not alone. Now, but we know, even as the hands and feet of Jesus, like we can't save anybody. And we cannot offer them what about, was about to happen to our three buddies here. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. There's this dramatic pause. What's going to happen? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on, on, on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. An amazing moment. What's even cooler is this moment was actually prophesied 200 years earlier, that, that spoken through Isaiah to the people, because, again, they knew, because of their disobedience, they were going into exile. And I love, look at what Isaiah says, Isaiah 42, 43, verse 2. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. And, and notice here, the promise, what I love about this, the promise isn't that they wouldn't go through the fire. They do. He said, you will. You will go through the fire. But the promise here is that God will bring you safely through the fire. And just like I like my steaks, like unburned, right, unscorched, right, rare, the way Jesus intended. So Paul, Paul, speaking hundreds of years later, was speaking to Jesus' followers. And, and, he, and, he, and he gave them this, which at first doesn't seem like it would be comforting or encouraging, but he strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I'm make no bones about it. Like, following me is hard. Like, you look at the life of Jesus. He didn't walk around it. He went through it. And he's invited us in, not around, but through. Because maybe some of you are coming this morning, you've been walking through hard stuff. Like, you all too well know what it's like to be in the midst of the flames. And what he's promising here is not that we won't go through it, but he'll be there with us. The promise is not a life of hakuna matata, right? It means no worries. If you, Okay. The promise is that he'll be with us and see us through it. In the psalm, it says, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But, what does he say? I will not fear. Why? Not because I'm not in the shadows, not because I'm not in the valley, not because this does not feel like the flames, but because you are with me. The great shepherd of the sheep will never call us into anything that he will not walk through us with. This is the beautiful, and this is what he's teaching the people of Israel. We're in, they're in exile here in Daniel, in Babylon. And he says, yes, I sent you there because of your sin, but I'm going there with you, and I will be there with you, and I will faithfully sustain you and bring you back home. 
that yes, these three are in the flames, but I'm there with them and I'll bring them out unharmed and unsinged. And so when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, he didn't say it's going to be a walk in the park. He said, when I send you, you actually will be persecuted. You will find hardship. But how does Jesus finish the call? Go and make them into the ends of the world and I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. No matter where we go, no matter where he calls us to, the great shepherd, Emmanuel, what his name Emmanuel means, God with us. But again, the point of these stories is not be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I hate to break it to you. Once again, we're not the heroes. I'm not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm Nebuchadnezzar, right? I'm the one that wants to serve myself first. I'm the one that makes the universe all about me. I'm not August Landmaster. I am Hitler, Right? I told the first crew, please don't take that out of context. Right? Our pastor said he's Hitler. I don't know what to do about that. Uh, we, we live, I mean, almost every day in my life, God, we are fighting the battle of, 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 of being our own gods. And, and we know that this universe of, of me-centricism, or whatever, is, is only going to lead to death. Life. There's only one way we find life, and it is found in the good news of Jesus. Because the reality is, There's only one human that's ever walked this planet that never bowed the knee to Babylon, that never tried to make themselves first, who ironically was the only one worthy of all worship and praise. Jesus went into the fiery furnace for us. But unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had someone in there with them, he went through the fiery furnace truly alone. And when he stood there, remember the words, when Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why is that? Why in that moment did God abandon Jesus? He's promised he's never going to abandon us. Why would he abandon his own son? We know it's because in that moment, Jesus took on the fiery pains of our own idolatry. Like he was suffering the punishment that I deserved. The only God dying for the one who was trying to pretend to be God. What good news we have here that Jesus walked through the fires of hell for six hours on the cross so that I could now die with him and I can walk through the fires with him completely unsinged and unburned and that I know one day I will make it safely into the arms of my Father. Not because I haven't sinned, but because I've been forgiven, because I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's why he can welcome me as his child perfectly as I am, as though I was more faithful than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when I was not. Why? Because he welcomes me with the faithfulness of Jesus. That Jesus was faithful for me, and now in Jesus, I actually have a shot at learning to become like Jesus, and becoming faithful like my good shepherd That's the good news. So what's the invitation today? The invitation is to bow to he alone as worthy. So we have a choice today, guys. We can can live in denial or we can live in reality. So I could jump off a roof in denial of reality, right? I could say, gravity is fake news, right? Jump off the roof. We know what's going to happen, right? I'm living in denial to my own demise. At the end of the story here, we see Nebuchadnezzar moving closer, closer, closer to reality from denial. Look at how the story ends. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Notice what he says. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made like a garbage dump, right? A little aggressive for evangelism methods, right? He's still learning. Old habits die hard, right? For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And just like we saw with Daniel in chapter 2, the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So we see Nebuchadnezzar starting to recognize that the universe doesn't revolve around him, that there is a God that is, that is worthy to be praised. This is the reality that the Bible is telling us. That there is a center of the universe, and it's not me. It is the person of Jesus Christ, that he alone is worthy of all worship. I can live in denial of that, or I can live in reality of that. But just like the sun is the center of our universe, Life does revolve around him. And when I live in denial, it's only to my own destruction. But here's the good news that the cross proves to us. This God is not a cruel God. He's not, he's not primarily an out-of-control, raging God. The God of the Bible is primarily a God of love and a God of mercy. And that's because he's a God that doesn't need anything. When I set myself up as a, as a false god, I'm a very needy god that needs to take and take and take. But our god has no needs outside of himself. So he is free to love and to give and to give and to give. But as God, he rightfully demands and deserves all allegiance and praise. The story ends of human history with every knee bowing to King Jesus, with every tongue confessing that he is the center of the universe. All nations, tribes, and tongues. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to set up a statue where everyone on earth would bow to him. It's not going to be one day everybody bowing to Babylon. It's not going to be everybody bowing to the United States of America. And it's certainly not going to be everybody bowing to me, to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, notice here, Nebuchadnezzar nods to what God does, but I'm not sure he's yet personally bowing the knee. You notice he says that praise to the God of who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And next Next chapter, chapter 4 next week, is going to show us he has not fully surrendered his life to Yahweh yet. And this reminds me, you know, he's basically saying, this, this is your God, that's good for you, right? How often today do we hear when, when someone tells, we tell someone, I'm a follower of Jesus, this is how he's changed my life, like this is my testimony. Most of the time, most family and friends will say, that's really good for you. Like, I'm glad you found something that works for you. And I think they're genuine in that, Right? I'm glad that works for you, but the subtext is, don't you dare tell me what's best for me, what's good for me. We're not going to get in any trouble. I shouldn't, we shouldn't get, we're not going to get as nearly as much trouble saying that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Where I'm going to get into all sorts of trouble is to say Jesus is your Lord and Savior too. That Jesus is everybody's Lord and can be everybody's Savior. But here is the reality. This is what the Bible teaches. Matthew 16, when he called them to follow him, he says to his disciples, for the Son of Man will, here's the promise word, will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. We're all going to give an account. And either we can accept the punishment for our own sin or we can accept that Jesus took the punishment for our sins. But he says, this is good news for those who receive. I love John 1. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the rights not just to be primarily slaves, to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. What saves us is choosing to bow my knee to freely receive this gift. He is calling out a group of people not being forced to bow the knee, but willingly throwing themselves down at his nail-pierced 
feet in joy and in delight. And this is the call today. This is the question. Every knee one day will bow. Have I bowed the knee? Have you bowed the knee? And we don't get to live, live off of the secondhand spirituality of people around us. It doesn't matter what your pastor believes. It doesn't matter what your spouse believes. It doesn't matter what your parent or your family member or friend believes. The question is, what do you do with the person of Jesus? And for those in this room today that are skeptics or unbelievers, man, I'm genuinely, honestly glad that you're here. Like, we love you where you're at. Like, and we're all learning. And, and there's all sorts of legitimate reasons to have questions and to have hurdles, right? And I would love to talk about those things. Like, and not a debate, but just to listen to you. And we've had bad experiences with church. We have legitimate reasons of like, so you want me to believe in this whole spirit world? Like, that seems a little out there. I like, there's reasonable things to talk through together. But then for those of us in this room that are believers... And what false gods have you been bowing to? Like, and, and we know, again, this isn't just because God's like, I'm so jealous that you're not bowing to me. This is the best thing for you is to live in light of reality. So when we make our comforts our ultimate, you know, I know, we chase those things down a dead end, right? When we try to live to make everybody else approve of us, does that actually bring me happiness? Not for a second. We try to live light. I know what happens when I try to control the steering wheel. We go flying off into the Kenai River, Right? And all sorts of problems with trying to be our own God. So what habits need to change this week? What beliefs need to change to reorient to the reality of a sun-centered world? The call is we've got to live on mission, guys. We don't know how much longer we got, but every knee one day will bow, every tongue will confess, and the most loving thing that we can do is to, is to go into the world with the good news that for those who will gladly bow the knee and confess with the tongue today, there is adoption as sons and daughters available for the much more freeing life of making Jesus our King and our Savior and our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you to be reminded of, of these hard but beautiful truths. Lord, every day we're tempted to listen to the lies, to bow to these false gods who we know we know deep down and we discover by experience they do not give us the life and happiness that they've been selling us on. So Father, I don't know, people are all over the place in this room today. We're going to let your Holy Spirit do the convicting. But Lord, we just ask that you would free us from enslavement to our own desires, the bondage of sin and self that this world, this Babylon is trying to sell us on. Would you give us the grace to trust that the better way is to let go of our lives and fall on the grace and mercy of our God found in the face of the one who went through the fire for us to present us before our God unsinged and unharmed. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. We just pray that today in this moment as we close in these songs that you would just give us the grace to take our eyes off ourselves and to give us the much more freeing, liberating, joy-filled vision of Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy of all worship. It's in his beautiful name that we bow, that we confess, and that all God's people said, Amen. Amen.